Thomas Sutcliffe Mort. Hello and welcome to Urban Ambling. Makita here. If, five years after your death, a memorial statue of you is unveiled by a governor, then you clearly did something of significance during your life. This is the more so if the cost of erecting that statue was raised by public subscription. But perhaps even more importantly, if at the time of the unveiling of the statue, five years, as I said, after your death, about a thousand of your former employees attend the unveiling, and it was reported at the time, comma, in so doing lost a day's pay, then you clearly must have been an extraordinary person. Such a person was Thomas Sutcliffe Mort. The memorial statue to uh, Mort is in Bridge Street, just a little up from Pitt Street, that's to the east, and is on the western side of Macquarie Place. The unveiling occurred in June 1883. At the time of the unveiling, Sir George Houston Reed, later to become the 12th Premier of New South Wales and, for a few short periods, Prime Minister of Australia, said as follows, A statue speaks for all time and to all generations. End quote. That's probably true in a way, I suppose. But what does it really tell us about this person? There is the plaque on it, which when you look at it, you'll see, which gives quite a bit of detail, but it really doesn't tell us anything about the person, although it does serve the benefit of suggesting that we make some further inquiries. Just before I turn to the result of those inquiries, can I just make a few points about the statue itself? It stands on a spot that was previously occupied by an ornate fountain which had been designed by Francis Greenway and was built in about 1816 during the time of Governor Macquarie. Some of you will recall that Francis Greenway was a convict who'd been sent out to the colony but went on to become a very famous architect in the early colony. At the time it was built and for some years thereafter it was a source of much dispute because some probably fairly little-minded people, regarded it as a, uh, as a waste of money. It was originally, as I said, a fountain, but there was even a proposal at one stage to do to it the ignominy of uh, turning it into a urinal. But in any event, it became neglected. Sir James Fairfax, in his Recollections of Old Sydney, says of the Mort statue, the statue is a recent adornment, having been erected in 1883. Uh, it is inscribed T.S. Mort, born 1816, died 1878. You will notice that it uh, sits at a slight angle to the line of Bridge Street and was deliberately placed that way because it meant that Mort was facing what was at that time on the opposite side of Bridge Street at the corner of Pitt. At that time was the Royal Exchange Building. And that was obviously done intentionally 
because Mort was one of a number of people at the time who was instrumental in the founding of that Royal Exchange, which was a very important organisation in the, that time in the colony. And Mort was involved, along with other worthies of the time, such as uh, W.C. Wentworth and uh, an earlier member of the Fairfax clan. Uh, someone once said that, quote, the entrepreneur of real life is a complex person, stop in quote. That, again, is not something that really tells us a lot, and I tend to think most people are fairly complex. But it was certainly true of Mort that he was a complex man. He was born in Bolton in Lancashire in England on the 23rd of December 1816. He was the fourth of six children. In the fullness of time, two of his brothers followed him to Australia. Interestingly, one went on to have a quite prosperous and significant career, but the other, who was called James, unfortunately seemed to stagger from crisis to crisis and was always relying on his brothers for help. At the time of Thomas's birth, the family was comfortably off. This really flowed from the activities of Thomas's grandfather, John Mort, who was described as a, quote, shrewd and successful cotton manufacturer, stop in quote. It seems that young Thomas spent a lot of time with his grandfather, and it was recorded at the time as follows, quote, At the knees of his grandfather, he absorbed that mixture of northern obstinacy and patience, of rural conservatism and caution, and of newfound urban dash and daring that was making Lancashire a vital centre in England's new life. End quote. Thomas's father worked in the business, but after the grandfather, John, retired, the business gradually went downhill. Thomas and his family moved to Manchester in the mid-1820s. Although, Commerce said, the business was fading somewhat, the finances were obviously still reasonable, for the family purchased and lived in a home called Greenhays, which was evidently set in extensive grounds. It's been said that, quote, there Thomas acquired the love of gracefully landscaped gardens and floral magnificence that he later lavished on his Sydney home, end quote. Thomas began his working life as a clerk in Manchester. He did not see much hope of advancement in the job, though, as he lacked the real family wealth and the strong connections that were necessary in those times to get ahead. He was able to obtain, uh, through his employer in Manchester, a position as a clerk in Sydney with a firm called Aspinall and Brown. He'd heard of the rapid growth of the colony of New South Wales and he decided to throw his lot in there so as to secure his future prosperity in the colony. He sailed from Liverpool on the 19th of September 1837 and we have to bear in mind that when he set off he was just short of his 20th, 21st birthday. He arrived in Sydney on the 25th of February 1838. 
Now, this is neither the time nor the place to go into a detailed chronicle of all Mort's business interests, because they were extraordinarily extensive. But can I just mention a few? Bearing in mind that he only arrived in the colony in 1838, within five years, in 1843, he'd commenced business on his own account as an auctioneer. He successfully supplemented general auctions with specialist wool auctions and soon widened his interests. Three years later, and again, this only makes him about 24, he began the construction of his own home, which was to be called Green Oaks and was situated in Darling Point. He clearly had done very well to be able to do that in that short time. In 1848, he became a member of the Provisional Committee of what ultimately became the Sydney Railway Company. In 1849, he was active in the movement to pr promote sugar production in the colony. And he was also, in that year, associated with the formation of the Australian Mutual Providence Society, the AMP, and he served as a trustee with that society for several years. Uh, in 1852, he launched off into uh, gold mining and formed the Great Nugget Vein Gold Mining Company and was a shareholder in the Sydney Gold Escort Company. In 1853 and onwards for some years, he began to speculate in pastoral properties. It was in 1854 that he began the building of Mort's Dock at Balmain, and, of course, the remnants of that are still there, and there's a park, and that's well worth a visit of its own. By 1860, he'd purchased a dairy farming enterprise at Badalla on the south coast, and he began clearing the land, draining the river flats, importing and sowing English grasses, and then brought in tenants, and also encouraged the consumption of maize. By 1862, his interests and his vision had extended to coal, and he was involved in the formation of the Waratah Coal Company. And he was the promoter of that company when it launched. In the same year, he branched out yet again, no one could keep him down, uh, into copper mining, and he uh, promoted and formed the Peak Downs Copper Mining Company. By 18 Sixty-three, he was engaged in activities which encouraged the production of cotton. By 1870, he was involved in the production of locomotives, steam locomotives, in the colony. And, uh, as you see mentioned on the sign, he was a great advocate of uh, refrigerated shipment of uh, produce from the colony. Uh, and he was involved in various aspects of that in the 1870s, including being active in the formation of the New South Wales Fresh Food and Ice Company. Now, that's just to mention a few, but one can see the extraordinary versatility of this man. Now, there have been criticisms, that's probably too strong a word, there have been observations about Mort suggesting that he tended to lack focus and spread himself too thinly. Some uh, 
probably being a bit jealous, I suspect, have said that he was just lucky with his timing. But I don't know that one would place too much reliance on that because luck tends to play a part in the life of most of us. But what's beyond contradiction is that in his 62 years of life, and he's just over 40 years in the colony, he made a significant contribution to the development of the colony, as well as, as he had set out to do in the beginning, secured his future prosperity. I mentioned just a moment ago the building of the house at Green Oaks in Darling Point. And bear in mind, when he was doing that, he was but 30 years of age, as I think I said. Although this house has been added to over the years, it is in fact the basic structure of it is still standing. Some years after Mort's death, the house was bought by the Anglican Church. Its name was changed to Bishop's Court, and it was the home of the Anglican Archbishops of Sydney from the 24th of October 2010 until fairly recent times. Mort had bought the land in question in 1846 for what would have been a pretty princely sum in those days of £2,500. The land bought was some seven acres, and when the house was built, it was described as the finest example of Victorian Gothic revival in Sydney. Mort was a keen gardener, and over the years he won many prizes at flower shows, particularly in the 1840s and onwards. He served as the Vice President of the Agricultural Society of New South Wales from 1861 to 1878. The gardens at Green Oaks uh, were developed over about 12 months and uh, in that regard Mort had the assistance of a prominent local landscape architect of the time called Michael Guilfoyle. The gardens that ultimately resulted were described as some of the finest in Sydney. There's a rather picturesque description that the gardens have used the steep sloping site to provide a wild romantic setting for the medieval mansion. In the Horticultural Magazine of 1865, uh, the gardens were described as the leading modern private garden in New South Wales. Now, one needs to be a bit cautious about that glowing description. It might have been right. They certainly seem to have been pretty fantastic. But Mort was president of that society between 1862 and 1878. So there may have been a little bit of uh, looking after the boss involved in whoever gave that description. Mort had a particular interest in the hybridisation of cacti in the garden. And interestingly, he uh, was said to be rather adept at growing prickly pear bushes. Now, I don't think, uh, certainly in the 20th century, anyone would be giving praises for breeding prickly pear bushes, but there you go. Mort was also a churchman. He was a high Anglican. Uh, he gave the land for the building of St Mark's Church in Darling Point, and that of church is, of course, still there. And it was he who commissioned Edmund Blackett, again, a very prominent architect of the time, to build the church. In addition to having given the land, Mort 
made payments available for the building of the church. In addition to this, he also contributed to the building of St Andrew's Cathedral in George Street in Sydney and St Paul's College, which is situated within the University of Sydney. Certainly um, a generous man. But above all else, Mort was a family man. In a book about Mort's business interests, which was written by a chap called Alan Barnard and was published in 1861, he gives this wonderful pen sketch of Mort rather in the introduction, and I don't think I can do any better than simply quote it. The Mort who was so melancholy before the camera was in fact a cheery soul, the life of the party, the centre of laughter and bright quips, an inveterate talker, and one who always attracted a willing hearing. His urbanity and charm are not to be found here, nor is it possible to show the Mort who was as much at home entertaining the children as he was at public meetings, who played the magician at children's parties and, with his hands thrust into a pair of patent Wellington boots on a table and with a skilfully arranged curtain and a disguised face, posed as a dwarf, dancing a hornpipe before the delighted youngsters. His domestic life, too, remains private. I've not attempted to explore his immense love of home, wife and children, nor theirs for him. Mort the churchman, Mort the funeral reformer, Mort the friend, leave but fleeting impressions here. To have written of this man would have been exciting, but it was impossible. Not only have I not wit enough to master that exceedingly difficult art, but the documents are not sufficiently expansive, nor sufficiently interspersed with chronology to enable me to hide my own shortcomings behind a mass of facts. It's a lovely tribute to a person. Mort died at his beloved farm at Badalla on the south coast on the 9th of May, 1878. He was but 62 years of age. He was survived by seven of his eight children and his second wife, Marianne. A remarkable life by a remarkable man. The statue does not speak to us, but it does, as said in the beginning, uh, encourage us to make further inquiries and thus find out more about Thomas Sutcliffe Mort. That's it for this time. Stay well, particularly in these unusual times. Try to find time to do a bit of ambling. Until next time, cheerio and all the best. <laughs>